Let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 62. Isaiah 62. This chapter has to do with Zion's glory. And the first verse is the intercession of Christ. He will not rest until this glory is revealed. We're talking about a future time. Zion's future glory. And then in verses 2 through 5, we have new names given. You know, God will not rest till He has accomplished His purpose in His earthly people and in Zion. And when it is accomplished, in verse 2, we're told that the Gentiles and kings will witness it. Then we find another section, verses 6 through 9, that was verses 2 through 5, verses 6 through 9, we find the intercession and the answer. And all of this points to the glorious consummation of the kingdom. And then the 10th verse, 10 through 12, I should say, the accomplishment at hand of what is and the results of Christ's coming. So this verse has to do, this chapter has to do with intercessory prayers for Zion's restoration. And we'll begin with verse 1. And we have prepared the 63rd chapter. We'll see how far we get. Maybe not too far, but we'll try. Notice verse 1. It says, For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. Now here we see the Messiah representing His unfeigning efforts for His people. Righteousness is not inherent in God's people. It comes only as God restores them to favor and to salvation. In fact, righteousness and salvation here are combined, or they're they're, uh, just like each other. In other words, there will not be any righteousness till there's salvation. There will not be any, any salvation apart from righteousness. They're both combined together. And the Lord will not rest until this is accomplished in His people. In the in the Jerusalem and in the time of the future, before the millennium, and at that time He will bring His people into salvation and into righteousness, and Zion will be established. And when it is accomplished, we'll go on into verse 2, we'll see that the Gentiles and kings will witness it. Look at verse 2. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness. There'll be a future time that it will be known in all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. A new name expresses their new status with God. God is going to give them a new name. Others were given new names in the Scripture. Remember, Abram was called Abraham. And Jacob was called Israel. Jesus came across Simon, and he says he called him Peter, Simon Peter. And others are given new names. We sing a song, there's a new name written down in glory. And God gives us all a new name when we're saved and born again, children of God. But in that day, he will rename many of his own, and especially his nation and his people. In verse 3 it says, Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. A crown of glory. Zion is the focus of this song of praise of Isaiah. Therefore it's been suggested that the walls around the city will be like a crown on one's head. When you take have the city and the walls around it, they represent the crown of Zion and his people. So it says, Thou shalt be a crown of glory 
in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. So he's talking about Zion and the future restoration and joy and glory. And then he says in verse 4, Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. Earlier they were termed forsaken of God. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called uh, Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. Now Hephzibah means my delight is in her. And Beulah means married. We sing a song about Beulah land. And it's talking about here about God being joined to His people and the land being joined to Him. And marriage. Thou shalt be termed. In other words, you see in verse uh, 4, Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. It's not going to be counted desolate. The inglorious names that were associated with Jerusalem in the past will be changed to glorious names. Instead of forsaken or abandoned or deserted, They're going to be God's delight. My delight is in her. This was also, by the way, Hesbazabah was also a name of uh, Hezekiah's wife. Hezekiah's wife was named that. Which makes the choice of this name significant, for Zion is identified with God's wife or queen. The association means a name, and this is a name not applied to any other woman in the Old Testament, hence that the prophecy comes from Hezekiah's day, and the name plays on the sound of the word forsaken. In the Hebrew, there is a word, uh, it plays on this word, Hebrew, it says A-Z-U-B-A-H, Ezebah. So it's very similar in its play on the word. And signifying the complete reversal of Israel's status. And then Beulah, of course, this name literally means married. And in Isaiah 50 verse 1, the prophet spoke of Israel being divorced. But now she would be reunited with God, her husband, by covenant. Zion will be called God's bride and thus have a part ownership in his kingdom. And verse 5 says, For as a young married virgin... As a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. So, so Zion will be a bride who is possessed by her husband. And will have many sons who will turn, in turn marry. Just as the father rejoices at the marriage of his children, so the Lord will rejoice in Zion and her offspring having sons and daughters in the covenant blessings for Israel in the future, because they're all promised to have be joined in these blessings of the covenant that God has made with Israel. But here a spiritual meaning might be in mind. Christ's desire was to bring many sons unto glory. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says that he might bring many sons unto glory. So that would include all of us being brought to glory, wouldn't it? Look at verse 6. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. And it says, And give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So the watchmen, they are set upon the wall of the city. For if there's an approaching enemy, they want to detect the enemy as he's approaching. And the watchman may refer to other prophets other than Isaiah. You have it in Ezekiel. And to godly people in general, we're all really as watchmen. 
Or perhaps an angelic host that is watching over us. The Bible says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for, for them who shall be heirs of salvation? In Hebrews 1 it says, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? And then the last verse that I just quoted, verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 1, they're ministering spirits to those that shall be heirs of salvation. So the watchmen are not only on this earth and the prophets of God and godly people in general, but perhaps angelic hosts. And his promises are for the return of the Jewish exiles from Babylon here in this uh, Old Testament from their dispersion or being scattered. And rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem that was done, that had been leveled down. Remember, in Nehemiah's day, they were reconstructed. But yet, it's talking about a future restoration of the nation and people. The watchman must cry to God and remind him of his promises. He intercedes between God and man. He is a a person that is, is praying to God, much like Moses of old, when Moses... Uh, you know, God said, Moses, these people have corrupted themselves. He says, take thy people. And he says, I'm going to judge them. And Moses says, God, these are thy people. He turns it right around and says, they're not mine, they belong to you. And that's the kind of intercession that gets at the heart of God. You and I need to realize that we need to make such intercession before God and, and ask that God spare other people. When God is... Uh, in, His anger is against sin and against wickedness, and yet we know by means of intercession we may intercede, and God is really not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He hears and answers our prayers regarding people that need uh, to turn to Him, and we need to be concerned. We need to warn the people that are in danger, and unceasing prayer is involved here. Look at verse 8. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies. And the sons of the stranger shall not drink thy wine for for the which thou hast labored. Sons of the strangers would be referring to the foreigners who would never again rob them of the fruit of their labor. You know, sometimes God's people uh, work and serve and labor. And others eat of that labor. But God promises here that's not going to happen to His people in the future. That they're going to be able to enjoy their own labor. Look at that verse again. The Lord has sworn by His right hand and by the arm of His strength. In other words, His power is going to enforce this. Surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies. And the sons of the strangers shall not drink of thy wine. For the which thou hast labored. But they that have gathered it shall eat it. When you gather food, when you do the work, you're entitled to the, to the reward for the, your labor. And if you go out and you plow the ground and you raise the wheat and you uh, raise the vegetables and, and till the soil, you're entitled to eat first of the, of the fruit of that uh, labor that you put into it. But they, they that have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. They're going to be thankful that God has blessed them with fruitfulness. And they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. When it says drink it in the courts of my holiness, after they've gathered the wine, they drink it at the feast in the temple. Look at verse 10. Uh, go through, go through the, the gates. Prepare ye the way of the people. 
Cast up, cast up the highway. You have gates and a highway. Gather out, out the stones. In other words, make a, pl- a plain highway where you won't stumble. The accomplishment of all this is at hand. Lift up a standard for the people. Those in Jerusalem were to go out and remove all the obstacles and all the stones to make a clear way. And this was for the return, even in the Old Testament, of those uh, returnees from the captivity. But we know that there will be a, the obstacles in the way in the future that God will want taken out of the way. And then it says in verse 11, Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Where does he pro- proclaim this message of Zion's future restoration and all the glory of Zion and all the fact that the land will be married to, to the Lord and the people will be fruitful and the watchmen will be warning of the dangers and God's blessings upon the people and they shall eat of the fruit of their labors. And a standard shall be lifted up before the people. You and I are to hold up a standard. What is our standard? Like a, an ensign or a flag. You know, some of you may have been watching the Olympics. And when they have the, the gold medalists and then the silver and the bronze, they have the flags go up, don't they? And that, that's what they stand for. But you and I have a flag to raise. And the flag is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ based on the Word of God and holding forth the Word of life, the Bible says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's our business to do. It's your business and mine. So it says, lift up the standard for the people. Verse 11 says, Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Look at that. God's main promise in bringing in the Messiah is for salvation, and not just for a few, but for the end of the world. Say ye unto the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. So there's a future blessing and restoration and conversion of the nation and people of Israel at the end of the tribulation period, before the Lord comes and before the millennium is set up. And these blessings will be realized then. These will be the results of His second coming. Look at verse 12. And they shall call them the holy people. God's people will be recognized as the holy people. The redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called sought out a city not forsaken. Sought out a city not forsaken. They will be sought after and highly prized by all the people over all the earth. Not forsaken alludes to uh, 6 verse 4 where we was talking about uh, desolate and forsaken and their land would be called Beulah. And no more would they be that. They were indeed forsaken at one time. Jerusalem had been named forsaken. But God's salvation first meant the return of the Jews to Judah in the Old Testament. And secondly, a universal salvation that was made possible and that is made possible through the Messiah and His return. So this whole chapter takes on a future aspect of Zion's glory. Now if you'll turn to the 63rd chapter just briefly try to give you a few things here. Here we see God as the avenger. There he's, uh, the first passage we gave you was he was the intercessor. And now he is the avenger. Remember, let me just give you this before we get into the chapter. In Isaiah 61, when we were talking about Jesus, and Jesus quoting Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, 
And we remember in verse 2 it says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then it said, and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus stopped between that sentence. We gave you that earlier when we taught Isaiah 61. But now in Isaiah 63, that day of vengeance is being spoken of. And God is seen as the avenger. And Christ is the one that is going to be seen in the book of Revelation as the avenger and as the one that comes uh, as is described in this chapter 63. When we start reading, we'll find... Uh, I've trodden the winepress alone and so on and so forth. And we're going to see that this picture is Christ as He comes in judgment later on in Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 19 when He comes back in power and great glory. A vesture dipped in blood. So that's what we're going to see here. So Isaiah says, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Isaiah is asking a question in the form of a prophetic vision. Edom, dyed garments, dyed, garments dyed like scarlet, like blood. And Basra is spoken of. Edom means red, while Basra means grape gathering. So it's red grape gathering time. And it applies to those who have been bloodied in divine judgment And this image is applied to the conquering Christ in the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 19, verse 13. Revelation 19, verse 13, it says this. Well, let's read verse 12. It says, His eyes were a flame of fire, and on His head were many crowns. It's speaking of Christ coming in glory and in judgment. And He had a name written that no man knew but He Himself. And He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And His name is called the Word of God. He's coming in judgment. You read on down in verse 15. It says, Out of His mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it He should smite the nations, and He shall rule them with a rod of iron. And He treadeth, listen, He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He's going to come treading the wine press. And this chapter in 63 of Isaiah has to do with that time. And it has reference to that time. The reference to the conquering arm of the Lord. And it suggested that Christ is the one that is in view here. The one that the prophet is speaking of. Let's look at it again. Verse 1. Who is, is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. See the power, the arm of the Lord. He speaks of, uh, speaks of the fact in Revelation that he will judge them with power. I, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. He's mighty to save, but he's also mighty to judge. You see, the Lord is not only the Savior of men, but he's the judge. You read in the Gospel of John chapter 5, it says that God has committed all judgment unto the Son. He's committed all judgment unto the Son. And the book of uh, Acts, I believe, is chapter 17. We've been studying it. Verse 31. It probably was in our lesson, or we might not have got that far. I forget where we left off. But in verse 31, it says, He is appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He has given assurance unto all men, in that He has raised Him from the dead. Yeah, we did get that far. When they heard of the resurrection, they they begin to to, uh, mock 
uh, Paul as he preached that. We had it this morning in Sunday school. So God has given the judgment to His Son, and there's a day of judgment. Look at the day of vengeance is spoken of in verses 2 through 6 in this passage in Isaiah 63. Wherefore thou read in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat. Actually, the wine fat means the wine press. The image of treading on grapes is not an image of joy here, but it's an image of, of judgment. It's a picture of divine judgment. I believe you have Isaiah, not Isaiah, but uh, Revelation 14. Look in Revelation 14, and you'll see. Uh, beginning with verse Revelation 14, beginning with verse 18 would be good. Verse 18 through 20. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. For her grapes are fully ripe. This is not a harvest to enjoy the wine. But what is it? And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of what? The wrath of God. Speaking of God's judgment. And the winepress was trodden without the city and the blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Great judgment. And this was predicted of that judgment that would come. And in Revelation 19, Jesus is seen as that great judge that is coming in such way. Verse 3 says, I have trodden the winepress alone. He will tread and will stain. It shows that God does punish those who are his enemies. And as the, as the Edomites historically were punished, we see it refers to a judgment that is in the book of Revelation in the future. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. Now look. And I will stain all my raiment. Hold your place in Revelation 19 and verse 13. Look at that again. I will stain all my raiment. It says, And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. You see, his raiment was stained. By the way, may I suggest here at this time that he's seen as coming in this way and then it's continued to be that way when he reaches the earth because in Revelation 19, he's seen already as coming. With uh, He's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. I wonder if he's not already fought the battle in heaven with Satan and all his angels and all of the victory that's won there. And now on earth, in verse 15, he comes and judges, and he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. So he's not only going to win the battle here on the earth, he's going to win the battle in the heavenlies. And you remember the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation, that serpent, that old serpent, that old dragon, the devil, is cast out, and his angels with him. Remember? In the 12th? That accuser of the brethren, that accused them before God both day and night. You have it in Revelation chapter 12. So he's already been in battle. The Lord is in battle in, he- in the heavenlies for us, and he will be in battle on the earth for us. And he will win both uh, wars. There was a war in heaven. Remember? The Bible tells about it. Well, Jesus is going to win all the wars. We come in and we think we have one or two, and we have conflicts all over the world today, and no one really ever wins. 
You know, we think we, we've won wars and we turn right around and we're caught in the same situations and, and our enemies become our friends and then our friends become our enemies. It just changes from time to time. Remember during World War II, what happened? Look at our allies and uh, look at our enemy. And now who is our, who is our best trading nation in the world? The Japanese. And who's giving us a little trouble up there now? Uh, Russia's saying, we're not going to stand with you, you know. It all changes, doesn't it? People change. Nations change. And we have that all through history. And we'll still have it. We had some allies during the, the Gulf War. And now half of those guys have turned the other direction. And we're going to have more confusion in all these things. But... The Lord is going to win all the battles in heaven and on earth. Let's go and read this. Uh, In verse 4, notice what it says. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. The time of His redeemed. He's redeemed of Israel and is redeemed that will go into the millennium with His nation and His people. But the day of vengeance will come first. Exacting punishment on His enemies and redeeming His people Go hand in hand. When God exacts punishment on the enemies, He also works salvation for His own. Like we've said in the last part of our message this morning, the gospel is the Savior of life to them that believe and of death to those that do not believe. And you have this two, twofold uh, situation. Exacting punishment on His enemies and redeeming, redeeming His people. And this principle is seen in Israel's deliverance from Egypt as well in, as in Christ's death and resurrection. It was seen when God delivered Israel from Egypt, wasn't it? This twofold thing. What? Vengeance and redeem, redemption? He redeemed Israel out of Egyptian bondage, delivered them across the Red Sea and brought them through the wilderness. But what did He do to, to the Egyptians? He drowned Pharaoh and his army in the sea, didn't he? Pharaoh's army is drowned in the, in the Red Sea. And he took vengeance on those that were against his people. He'll do the same thing in the future. And he will always do that. As in Christ's death and resurrection, what did he do there? He provided for our salvation through his shed blood on the cross and paid complete For complete redemption. Salvation is free. Grace is free. Completely. I used to hear old Dr. Ensminger, I'm glad salvation's free. I'm glad salvation's free. Salvation's free for you and me. I'm glad salvation's free. And so it's free for us. But at the same time, what did Jesus do when He died on the cross? He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And He delivered them, Hebrews chapter 2, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That through death, He might deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What does it mean? That in Christ's death, He won the victory. The devil thought he was having a field day. He was doing everything he could to get him on the cross, and he did. And uh, Jesus spoke of those. He says, this is your hour and the power of darkness, didn't he? 
This is your hour in the power of darkness. But that hour turned around to be the pitfall of Satan and turned out to be his judgment. And so in the Gospel of John, I believe it's chapter 12, maybe verse 30 or 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And he says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So he brought salvation to his people and he brought judgment to Satan. And even though it was won at the cross, Paul speaks of a day that he will tread Satan under his feet shortly. And he speaks of a future time that the end of the devil and all of his power against us will come to an end. I wish it was already that way, don't you? But it's not that way yet. And for some reason, God in His wisdom has permitted us to be besought and be troubled with satanic forces until the time comes that Jesus will declare complete victory. And that day is someday in the future. And it will happen that the devil won't bother you anymore and the world and the flesh won't bother you anymore and we'll be like him for we shall see him as he is. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart and the year of my redeemed is come. Verse 5 says, and look at this, And I looked and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. There was none to help. In the spiritual sense, salvation, the salvation of God's people, and only God cared enough to, to, and had the power enough to accomplish this salvation. We might say that Jesus and He alone paid the price for our redemption. There's a verse of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, By Himself He purged our sins. By Himself. Starting now with the verse, first verse, and let me just bring you to verse 3 just for the purpose of showing. It says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. Now listen at this one. Who being the brightness of His glory, God's glory, and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power. God did this. When He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Jesus said that, it says here, And I looked, and there was none to help. And by the way, He didn't need anyone's help. He didn't need your help or my help. The Bible says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world into Himself. An angel didn't help him. There was no man to help. And Jesus and he alone paid the full price for our redemption. And he did it in one glorious, great, wonderful sacrifice on the cross of Calvary and shed his blood to redeem us to God. And the Bible says without shedding of blood is no remission. And it guarantees that through his blood there is. In whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 1.7 Colossians 1.14 In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And Hebrews 9 verse 12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. 
In the Old Testament, there was a year at a time that the people were redeemed. Redemption was wrought on a yearly basis. But He entered in once with His own blood, not with the blood of goats and calves or sacrificial animals, but with His own blood. And He, having obtained, it's past tense, having obtained eternal redemption, that's the kind we have, for us. So if you're redeemed, you're redeemed eternally. That's the, kind, that's the only kind God has. He doesn't have a temporary one. Jesus didn't accomplish a temporary one like they did in the Old Testament. He accomplished eternal. And therefore, those that believe on Him have eternal life, everlasting life. Well, our time is about gone. I don't think we'll have time to finish this chapter, but I hope we leave you with some few thoughts.